0: Welcome to the 800th episode of Technovation. I'd like to say thank you to our listeners for helping us reach this milestone. My guest to mark the milestone is Mustafa Suleiman. Mustafa is perhaps best known as the co-founder in 2010 of DeepMind, an artificial intelligence laboratory that pioneered deep learning. The company was acquired by Google in 2014, and DeepMind was made especially famous in 2016 after its AlphaGo program beat a world champion professional Go player in a five game match. AlphaGo learned by interpreting the moves of humans who played the game. A later DeepMind technology, AlphaZero, learned only through reinforced learning, playing games like Go and chess by itself. Mustafa left Google in January of 2022 and became a venture partner at Greylock. A couple months later, he co-founded Inflection AI, a new AI lab venture, and the goal Mustafa has noted for the company is to leverage AI to help humans talk to computers. In 2023, Inflection AI launched a chatbot named Pi for personal intelligence. And finally, Mustafa has a new book called The Coming Wave of Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma. I look forward to talking to him about all the above and more. Mustafa, welcome to Technovation. It's great to see you again.
1: Great to see you again, Peter. Thanks for having me. And um, congrats on the milestone. That's phenomenal. 800 hours of podcasts is is quite an achievement. That's awesome.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. That's really nice of you to say. Well, I, Mustafa, I'd love to begin with your roots as an entrepreneur. You started uh, businesses very young, uh, I believe as, as early as 18. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where that entrepreneurial itch came from.
1: Yeah, well, I, actually, in a way, I started my first um, business in the first term of secondary school when I was uh-huh. 11 years old. I started selling sweets um i would go to first the corner shop and buy these sort of strange chewy bars called iron brews and whams and uh those kinds of things like you know neon multicolored things for like 5p and sell them for 15p and then uh one weekend i managed to persuade my dad to take us to the the costco the cash and carry uh and get them for even cheaper by buying on bulk and then three or four weeks after that, me and my, my business partner at the time, my best friend, uh, Richard, we hired a couple other people to sell suites for us. And then we came back the next term and we hired people in the years above and it turned into quite uh, a little moneymaker. We were very happy about that. So, yeah, I don't know. I've always I've just always enjoyed the little logic puzzle of uh, transactions. I like the fun of selling. You know, I, I, I enjoy negotiation. It's actually, like, just a it's a very satisfying process to find a you know fair deal between two parties and a creative way of giving people what they want. I think um, you know, so you know, somehow it's just always been
0: in me. That's very interesting. And you went to university at Oxford, and you read philosophy. Uh, I'm curious; you you wouldn't complete that degree because of that same entrepreneurial itch. You would uh, would leave and pursue other other opportunities, not just entrepreneurial, but other opportunities beyond that. Um, but I, I wonder what was it about philosophy that intrigued you enough to make that the subject of your study at Oxford?
1: What I loved about philosophy was that it was a systems thinker subject. It was broad, wide ranging. I could touch anything. And it attempted to find explanations and causality in domains that were previously like sort of, you know, often left to the wayside, like esoteric subjects, like introspection, like what, what, what is it, you know, to have meta thinking and how do I project meta thinking into cultural and political space? Like, you know, I was very intrigued at this connection between myself and the ideas around me. And, um, so when I got to Oxford, I realized it was actually quite a different course to what I was expecting. It's very theoretical. There's a lot of logic um, and very structured. Like I was kind of expecting to have a bit more uh, freedom to look into subjects that I was particularly interested in. Um, and quite quickly, my attention turned to two other things that I was doing. One is that I started an electronic point of sale system business basically we we had uh little pdas that were that we were trying to sort of persuade restaurants to buy to have their waiters and waitresses uh you know record the order and send it to the kitchen and stuff and it was a little it was very much ahead of its time <laughs> put it that way we weren't successful but we spent a good six months trying to make it work uh and then at the same time i met someone at oxford who became a good friend um who uh, I helped to start the Muslim Youth Helpline with the telephone counseling service and that just felt like a much more practical and immediate way for me to apply my my interest in ethics um and and I, and I had just become I was a freshly minted atheist at that point uh having got to Oxford and discovered ethics and universal values and human rights principles I uh, quite quickly became a, a staunch atheist but I saw the opportunity to do some good with the charity and still worked. and it was a it was a secular non non religious charity even though it was you know principally for people of muslim background
0: what a, a remarkable uh, thing to focus your time on what what was the inspiration for that um the, the muslim youth helpline
1: we were just coming out of 911 sort of 2002 beginning of 2003 when i got involved and um it was a kind of realization that actually there were you know a lot of young people who were struggling with their identity and trying to figure out like who am i i I don't feel sufficiently british that i'm accepted i'm definitely not from my home country be it somalia turkey or bangladesh or you know syria in my case Um, i've notionally got this label of muslim and i'm going through all of these difficult challenges of trying to figure out how to practice my faith or to leave my faith or to cope with you know, just non-faith issues, but just cultural challenges like growing up, not drinking alcohol or having feelings towards members of the same sex uh, and feeling terribly guilty about that, or just generally struggling with bullying at school. I mean, at the time, if you were Muslim and British in 2003, you were 4.5 times more likely to be in the prison population, um, This is one of the highest concentrations uh, relative to any identity. So there was just a lot of work to do. And uh, this this felt like a great, a great way to get involved.
0: And you would continue influencing perhaps comparable sorts of issues more broadly as a policy officer on human rights for uh, Ken Livingston, the mayor of London. Uh, talk a bit about that. Those who know, know you as a tech entrepreneur might be, again, surprised by some of the things you focused on early on in your career. But talk about that uh, stop in your journey.
1: Yeah. So I was always interested in how to get things to work at scale. And the problem with the, our charity was that, you know, we were constantly begging and persuading and cajoling people to give things for free was either their time or, you know, um, make donations, or we actually had a really amazing, um, Jewish community leader called Richard stone who, um, helped us get a rent-free building in swiss cottage in north london um for many years which enabled us to really run the charity he's he's passed away recently but i mean without him muslim youth Helpline wouldn't have happened and he was a great inspiration to me um because you know first of all as a 19 year old muslim british muslim just just become an atheist seeing someone from that community help us out was a huge deal and he never made a big deal of it no one really ever knows that he did that uh, I was a huge inspiration and I was at a moment in my life where I was sort of committed to trying to do the best I could, trying to do good with the resources I had and uh, I was frustrated that the charity wasn't scaling and it was really hard to get it to be open 24 hours. We were only open 12 hours a day, seven days a week and uh, it was hard to make it sustainable. We were writing lots of grants and so on and it was a hustle and I, I thought maybe local government is the way to really have a big impact. So I was 21 years old and became a policy officer, I think was the title, basically, I was just helping write research reports and so on, investigate the impact of the Human Rights Act in the mayor's office uh, in in 2003. But I I didn't do that for very long. That was, I think it was like nine months or so.
0: And and, and nine months later, at at roughly 22, you co-founded a consultancy called Rios Partners, um, which is a systemic change consultancy. Um, talk a bit about the inspiration for that. I, I can certainly start to see the thread being pulled here in terms of different ways to create impact. Um, but what was it about this uh, this idea that that struck you?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, again, I was also very lucky there to work with incredible people. I My co-founders of Rios were some of the lead facilitators of the peace and reconciliation process in South Africa post-apartheid. Um, and so they were like, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And I was just so lucky to be in a group. There was a a big group of us who co-founded it, Seven or so. The goal there was to try to convene what we called multi-stakeholder change labs. So basically take a systems view of a stuck social problem, be it malnutrition in India. In the UK, we ran the Sustainable Finance Lab. This was back in 2005, 2006, 2007, trying to, before the financial crisis, convening a wide group of stakeholders to analyze the system from a kind of head, heart and hands perspective, go and physically experience what it's like to be on a trading floor, go and see the consequence of, um, you know, a young family that had taken out too much debt on payday loan credit cards, you know, go and visit a factory. And um, we would bring policymakers, academics, activists, CEOs, really diverse and representative groups of people through extended multi-day in some cases multi-week processes full-time processes to reimagine the system to learn again to you know take time to reflect deeply on what it is you've missed throughout your professional career that is actually the key to unlocking a new systemic change intervention um and uh you know i i it was an incredible experience i really that was a very transformational and formative experience for me uh thinking about the problem in that way thinking both long-term multi-stakeholder um and with all kinds of interventions at your disposal sometimes spinning out a for-profit sometimes spinning out uh, a think tank sometimes proposing um a regulatory change and and it was just a great system-wide education for me in 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 how the world works and and how to make interventions in it
0: a remarkable experience and it, that was the last stop before the founding of deep and I want to talk a little bit about, maybe before we get into the specifics of DeepMind, the story so far, at least as it's been told, there's not a direct connection with technology. Uh, you were a philosophy major, you began a consultancy policy, um, you know, the the charitable work, the consequential charitable work you were doing. What was your relationship to technology up to this point before the founding? Um, you know, was it a sort of a side hustle or an interest or something you learned as an autodidact? Did you have any formal training in it?
1: It's a good point. I had a computer very young and was very lucky to have access to the web as a kid and was a complete addict and spent most of my life, you know, inside online playing games pretty much and browsing the web, meeting new people, mostly torrenting mp3s and stuff. And I tried the electronic point of sale business, which is the first version of that when I was, you know, in my late teens early 20s. But yeah, no, fundamentally, I had no formal training. It was really as a result of me spinning out of the 2009, uh, the the climate negotiations in Copenhagen. You know, this was a big, high expectation event. Everyone thought that this was the moment when we were going to achieve consensus on climate change. And, you know, we were facilitating one of the nine negotiating tracks, this one on reducing emissions from deforestation and it was basically a total failure it looked like we were never really going to make progress on on all the issues and the main thing that frustrated me was that we basically couldn't agree on the facts on the ground um we couldn't even you know surface like which trees were being cut down where were they being cut down why were they being cut down what were the incentives that were driving it you know how do we you know replant should we be buying kelp farms should we be reforesting norway should we be you know, you know, reforesting the Amazon. Like, what does it do to high, monoculture? I mean, it's just like we basically knew very little, um, and that was partly why the negotiations fell apart. And and obviously, you know, other things too. But just the lack of knowledge, you know, was is a prerequisite to being able to know what to to intervention to make. And at the same time, I kind of saw Facebook coming up strong and growing to 100 million monthly active users in the previous. I think it was a couple years in 2007 to 2009. And I just had this huge realization after that failed conference that if I missed technology, I was going to miss the most important thing to happen in my life. So I just basically set about trying to meet anyone and everyone and, you know, that I could find involved in technology. And um, that, you know, after, you know, a year of, of wandering around, sort of talking to people, I bumped into Demis Hassabis, who's the co-founder and CEO of DeepMind. You know, in some ways, the rest is history. You know, we were both aligned on on trying to figure out like how to do good in the world. Both long-term thinkers. Although he was a software engineer, he well, he he did computer science at Cambridge, but wasn't really a software engineer, right? So he but he had started a games company, and he was more of a neuroscientist. So he also was a big-picture, multidisciplinary thinker. Um, and then our third co-founder, Shane Legg, um, who, you know, really is a software engineer and amazing mathematician, um, um, joined joined the gang.
0: Can you talk a bit about um the roles that each of you played? You've just talked a little bit about, we've heard of course a, at some length of, of your background prior to this, and a little bit here about Demis and Shane in terms of their their backgrounds prior to the founding as well. How would you what what lanes did each of you take the extent to which it could even be formulated that way? I imagine there's, there was considerable overlap to the Venn diagram, but what did you bring to the table different from what they brought to the table? Do you think?
1: Yeah. So actually it was remarkably complementary. I mean, Shane was very much, um, you know, focused on AGI definition and the measurement of progress towards AGI. Um, mm-hmm. and for his, um, PhD, he had evaluated measures of intelligence um, and looked at 60 different definitions uh, and tried to aggregate them together in a single definition, uh, the ability to perform well across a wide range of problems, and then represent that in a way that we could actually measure and make progress through, which he called AIC. And this, this was sort of a North star framing for all the other research and engineering that took place. It's like sort of measuring progress towards generality, hence the AGI mission definition. Um, You know, Demis set vision and culture and ran the research team. Um, He's a great salesperson and, you know, very inspiring and, and did a great job of hiring great people. I was responsible for applied AI. So getting our technologies into products in practice. Um, And that's what I spent six or seven years at Google doing, uh, deploying machine learning in production across many, many different products.
0: And it wasn't that long before you uh, attracted remarkable investors, uh, the likes of Peter Thiel and Elon Musk uh, among them, and and of course, uh, prominent Silicon Valley venture capital firms also. Um, Talk a bit about that pathway from kernel of an idea to... Uh, introduction to some of the uh, predominant uh, and preeminent thinkers in technology in Silicon Valley as backers to to your venture.
1: Yeah, I mean, like with so many things, it was somewhat arbitrary and quite lucky. I mean, Shane was giving a talk at the Singularity Summit in San Francisco in the summer of 2010. And we saw that Peter Thiel was a sponsor of the Singularity Summit. And this was a very fringe kind of obscure futurist you know, transhumanist, really, summit, conference. I think Shane was invited because of his participation on Less Wrong, which is like a forum, an online forum for rationality and generally kind of thinking about the techno future and whatnot. And at at that point in, you know, the sort of late 2000s, he was kind of somewhat present there. And they invited him uh, to give a talk about AGI definitions. And so he managed to get... Demis um, invited as well to give a talk about you know, neuroscience. Then Demis took me as his plus one. <laughs> and we, we basically cornered Peter Thiel at the afterpart. We were very disappointed to see that he wasn't in the audience for the talks. So that was the first problem. We were like, we've come all this way and we have no introduction to anybody. Um, but then luckily we managed to get invited to the afterparty, uh, which happened to be at Peter Thiel's house. And then the three of us sort of awkwardly shuffled over to him at some point and sort of Demis gave a, uh, he might be a bit upset if I say, it, was a, a mumbled pitch in five or 10 minutes. And then Peter was like, OK, you should come and visit us. Come and visit me tomorrow. Uh, and so that, that then we did. And then we managed to, then we were successful on the, the next day. But yeah, it was very lucky. If we didn't get that, I think we had at that point we had about £250,000 of funding in the UK. Um, and then I think he gave us like $1.5 million, $2 million or something. It's strange. We were very ahead of our time. And we were very lucky that Peter was also pretty um, wacky and up for crazy things.
0: <laughs> well, well a, a big bet you made, and certainly in, in hindsight, uh, a bet you got right was on deep learning. Um, Correct. Can, you, can you talk a bit about, you know, that that the decision for that focus and mm. it's 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 in retrospect it might seem obvious to somebody but not necessarily so obvious at the time that you were focused on this at least for for other entrepreneurs maybe it did, felt that way for the for the three of you but talk a bit about that
1: yeah i mean a lot of the credit for us catching the deep learning wave should go to dan vistra actually, who was one of our early researchers, he may even have been employee number five or six or something. He was friends with Shane from postdoctoral work at EPFL in Switzerland. And um, he was very interested in Boltzmann machines, and deep leaf networks and all the the very early, early versions of, of deep learning, I'm really referred to as deep learning then, he was quite obsessed by it and very interested in, in in generating images from the CIFAR training set, so like like black and white pixel, um, handwritten digits, um, and trying to generate them and so on. And and you know it, that was in two thousand eleven. So we were very lucky because we sort of saw that working very early on, and then that enabled us to go out and make bets on the other researchers in the field who had already been focused on that. So for example, we we had Jeff Hinton as one of our paid contractors. I think it was 2011 that I contract. I think I contracted him, um, or at least I did the paperwork for him. So I, I remember chatting to him about it in 2011. Uh, and Ilya Satskiva and who else? Like various other people. There's a whole bunch of people from OpenAI who came to intern. I think Wojciech did came for an internship. And do whether that was a bit later, I think 2014, 15. So yeah, and and obviously we hired a bunch of great people and that's because we, we could afford to. It was cheaper back in those days. Um, so it was really just getting the timing right as much as anything else.
0: And I think you, you've uh, indicated that it was um, Atari DQN, which I'd love to have you kind of describe that a little bit, that initially caught Larry Page's attention. Talk a bit about that, obviously very consequential again and would lead to a remarkable change for for the company.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the Atari DQN stuff was was staggering. I mean, I still think it might be one of DeepMind's, if not DeepMind's, greatest contribution, because it was really the first time that um, anyone had really demonstrated deep learning combined with reinforcement learning. It was the first time I had ever seen anything that looked like an agent that could learn its own sort of strategy or tactics. I mean, strategy is too strong a a frame, but it, it looked like it was discovering new knowledge through... Um, self-play through large-scale interaction with the simulated environment itself and simply by optimizing reward um, it was discovering you know new creative ways to win at the game and of course that was at least from my personal motivation and I think the guys too that was the goal of DeepMind to invent new knowledge to to help us make you know progress with our tough social problems to tell us stuff that we don't know, not just regurgitate stuff that has already been produced in the history of human knowledge. We, we want to produce intelligences to advance the corpus of human capability. And to me, that was the first glimmer. This was back in 2013, that that was not only possible, but quite cool. Like it was actually happening and it was very fun to see it working in a game. So yeah, it's not surprising in a way that I think when Larry Page saw that, he obviously could see the potential that if that something like that could be scaled up over the course of a decade or two decades, then, you know, that really would represent a step function shift in 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 human possibility. And I think that's what's happening now. We're a decade on from that. And I think things are just getting started
0: yeah that's interesting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to to, to fast forwarding um, shortly, but but lingering there for a little longer, as you reflect on the founding of the firm and the progress you made in less than three years, I believe it was uh, in in establishing Atari DQN. It would be just four years later, I believe that that uh, the acquisition from Google would come. Um, as you think back to the the outset and your goals and how you know in your mind what you were thinking about what success looked like did did it occur to you that it might come so quickly?
1: We certainly had no intention of selling. And so selling was a real difficult decision because Mm. we had been saying for ages that this was a multi-decade mission, that we would always remain independent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it genuinely, I think, was not on our radar. But, you know, essentially they made us an offer that we couldn't refuse. It was, you know, a way to, you know, sort of 10x, the amount of compute and people that we would have access to i think when we were acquired we were barely a hundred people i mean these days d mines about thirteen, fourteen hundred, 1400 i think um so you know that that promise you know was made good and and obviously on the compute front i mean spending billions of dollars on compute is just very 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 tough back in 2013 before anything had been proven so uh i think you know we were very much ahead of our time so it was this was the right thing to do uh, at that moment, even though it wasn't the planned thing.
0: What was it from the get-go the intent to basically have it run in parallel to Google Brain as opposed to combining? I believe it's only this year, really, that the, the two have been more formally brought together. But uh, you, your, your founding team was together on the DeepMind side. Jeff Dean and Andrew Ng were uh, on the Google Brain side. How, if, if much, did you interact with, with them um, uh, through that period?
1: Well, the research groups didn't really interact very much. Mm -hmm. I did a lot more because I was responsible for products and applications. And so sometimes we would both have a team, uh, you know, Jeff would have a team, we would have a team that were both trying to apply something in a similar PA and we would collaborate on things. But yeah, I, I spent a lot more time in Mountain View and traveled back and forth for many, many years. So built relationships across the company so that we could deploy our... Breakthroughs and so on, um, but the research teams really didn't interact very much until now.
0: And I believe you said it was uh, Sergey Brin who was uh, kind of pushed you all to focus on Go and alpha go and and uh, as a as a sort of a something to tackle. Is that uh, is that true?
1: I mean, to his credit, it was really him pushing it. He is a Go player and very passionate about it, and could see that you know Go had similar characteristics to Atari in the sense that it was a contained simulator with a clear reward signal that could be back propagated through a series of games um and that would be you know applicable for the kind of self play style reinforcement learning algorithms um so yeah he he was insistent on it and i think we were skeptical for a for a while and then gave it a shot and then it started to work
0: And eventually, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, AlphaGo would would compete against Lee Sedol, the the, um, world champion Go player. Talk a bit about uh, uh, watching that real time, what that experience was like for you.
1: Yeah, it was it was surreal. I mean, I'd never been around paparazzi, (laughs) (laughs) any photographers, let alone like, you know, 300 photographers and film, uh, you know, camera crews and so on. It was like an entire floor of like a wedding venue at a at a hotel, completely wall-to-wall covered with press. It was very surreal. I just remember it being pretty nail-biting. Um, you know, we I think people in hindsight look back and see, you know, well, we won and it was a big success and so on. But I think that was really not destined. Uh, and there was a lot of anxiety beforehand that, you know, there was either going to be a bug or something was going to fail or... You know, we just didn't know how good Lisa Doll would be in practice, and we'd miss something, and so on. So, yeah, it was it was electric. It was an amazing experience, historic.
0: And I something I'd, perhaps it will be a, a topic we raise in a couple of different parts of our conversation. But I was also interested to um, to learn that from the get go in your relationship with Google, and 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 certainly even dating back further, at the creation of the company, that ethics and safety were kind of. Baked into what you do, that this was a, in fact a condition of the acquisition. If I if I read correctly, was to establish an ethics board uh, within Google associated yep. with artificial intelligence. Talk a bit about I, I mean, I, perhaps uh, with its roots back in your ph- days as a philosophy uh, major at uh, at Oxford. Uh, th- these were topics that obviously were were near and dear to your heart, but uh, the implications. Uh, of this on artificial intelligence, uh, it sounds like from the very early stages were also very front of mind. Talk a bit about your your thoughts on those those days.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was always clear to me from the outset that if we were successful, then we would be unleashing a, a new class of technology. If you think about the history of all technologies that have gone to date, they are fundamentally static. They depend for their ongoing innovation on human intervention. And that's a key distinction to the kinds of technologies that we're talking about with AI. I mean, I'm not going to say that AI is life, but it has lifelike capabilities. It's interactive, it's potentially self-learning, right? It can improve and adapt to context. It can take abstract goals and use those to create arguably strategies or in in time, coherent plans of action across a wide range of different types of environments. So it was very obvious to me from the beginning that if we were mildly successful, we were going to unleash something that was truly unique in the history of technologies. And so our mission in 2010, you know, when I wrote the business plan, the front page, if you ever saw the original DeepMind logo, I, I thought it was much more attractive than the later one that we did, but it was an infinity swirl. It was very beautiful. It was three-dimensional um and had a kind of sheen to it and we were very And later uh, the latter logos were much more uh, matte and padded and it lost that depth which was you know kind of a shame but we were sort of trying to tone down the kind of infinite you know loop nature of the singularity element to it but that was actually the core motivation of it but the, the strap line for the business plan was building agi safely and ethically for the benefit of humanity looking back 13 years later obviously kind of weird at the time to do that but it was you know sort of i guess appropriate you know It it was appropriate prediction and so when the time came to give up control of the technologies we just thought it was pretty obvious that we should have you know an independent board overseeing the ethics and safety of the technology in its development and its use and that there should be a certain number of red lines that would be off the table the use for um, military purposes, weapons, um, and for surveillance purposes, and I think that had a, an impact on the field. In, you know, in terms of the way that OpenAI founded and the way that they constituted themselves in 2015, and then subsequently with Anthropic, same story. I think it's, it's now sort of set off a chain reaction of a new generation of companies thinking first about what the governance and you know legal structure is that enables an ethical decision making process at some point in the future if not ethical then you know at least allows for the accommodation of non profit based decision making processes in the final outcome right and so yeah that's that's where it came from
0: that's very very interesting i'd love to talk about a couple things a, a few things that you note in your book the coming wave uh, you talk a little bit about the whole notion of waves, uh, uh, you talk, you, you refer to that as general purpose technology that enables other technologies. You go back to fire and, and the wheel and electricity and uh, various uh, technologies that have been these waves. Uh, and then you talk about the next wave is one of intelligence. Uh, mm-hmm. Intelligence is the ability to take actions, the ability to synthesize information, the, to make predictions. Um, and in, in many ways, this is also, as you note I, I, here, I'm paraphrasing you throughout this. Uh, it's also kind of the definition of power. And you talk about the subtitle is technology, mm. power, and the 21st century's greatest dilemma. Um, talk a bit about that that sort of intersection of of, of ideas there, and this wave that is coming.
1: Mm. I mean, the first thing to say is that you know, I when I sat down to write the book, I, I wanted to start with a sort of historical overview of the way in which all of the past technologies have arrived in our world and and what their function has been. And the overriding characteristic, if you like, that I, I think I I identified and in hindsight, it seems incredibly obvious and, and clear, is that if something gets, you know, you know, effective, if it's useful in our world, then it tends to get cheaper and easier to use. And, you know, waves rather generally I've kind of defined as any piece of technology that augments us right so that's the broadest possible definition my glasses are a piece of technology that helped me to see my the hand axe you know is a technology that helped you know us to skin meat and eat well and so on and and and, you know kill prey all of these huge waves of technology have been so transformative over you know the history of our species but they've really been enablers of our power you know we have a desire to do something to cure our hunger, to entertain ourselves, to make a profit. Um, and you know, what distinguishes us as unique as a species is our ability to to use to create tools and use them to pursue that agenda, our power. And um that that's really what intelligence is. Like you said, you know the ability to synthesize information into a moment around which we use our judgment to make a decision and you know based on that you know hopefully deliver an action that achieves the kind of power objective that we're looking for Um, and that that process in its most abstract form is one that we are now distilling into an algorithmic construct and that's what it means to parallelize and scale up the the idea of intelligence, right? I mean, it's no longer going to be constrained by the processing power of our biological substrate. It's going to become a commodity. You know, we're turning it into capital. And that's really the kind of general thesis of the book. It has profound implications for everything that that's now going to become a commodity.
0: Yeah. And you, you talk about how spreading misinformation and reducing the barrier to entry to exercise power is also an issue we need to contemplate. In the book, you talk about the necessity for a modern Turing test. Can you talk a bit about the what that, what that entails?
1: The Turing test has been the guiding light for many decades now. And the, the core assumption was that if a machine could imitate human conversation, then somehow that would give us an indication that it was intelligent. And I think now that we are approaching the moment where we've passed that milestone I and mean, maybe we've passed it you know it's pretty clear that these models are are quite incredible i mean if, if if you ever get to play with pi it's super conversational and super fluent and i think you can tell that it's not human but it takes a while and it doesn't make that many mistakes um and that's just a remarkable moment in history to live through that and be involved in creating that but it doesn't really tell us that much about what whether pi is intelligent or not right I think intelligence is actually better measured by what a system can do rather than just what it can say. so I, I sort of proposed a modern Turing test, which tries to evaluate capabilities you know what 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 is the system capable of doing in that, I sort of come up with this you know kind of simplistic idea, which is well, what if you know you could just give a general high level goal to uh, an AI like go and make uh you know a profit from a hundred thousand dollar investment by inventing a new product, going and get it manufactured, um, and then marketing it and promoting it, right? Um and so the AI would have to do the market research, would have to create the website or the shopfront to display it. It would have to generate the imagery to get it manufactured. It would have to negotiate with the manufacturer over the design of the blueprints and organize to have it delivered and and so on. All of these tasks represent things that many humans have to do in their day-to-day professional roles. And so if those capabilities, the ability to be creative, the ability to plan, prioritize, the ability to negotiate, communicate, can be distilled into an algorithmic construct, into an AI, then measuring the extent to which that is possible is going to tell us how close we are to having this alchemist stream you know this commodity that can be used like this raw horsepower that can be used to turbocharge like cognitive labor right like not just physical labor but brain labor and i think that's been the trajectory that we've been on the whole way through it's why it's always been kind of obvious to me that we're not going to actually destabilize blue collar work first it's actually going to be cognitive manual labor the rote tasks, the repetitive, quite predictable tasks of back-end office administration and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you also, though, highlight that we're in the most meritocratic period in the history of our species, is the way you framed it, um, and approaching a period that you believe is going to be the highest productivity for humanity. Uh, but it also may coincide with a period of, of the least stability. Talk a bit about that uh, paradox.
1: Yeah, the nice thing about writing a book is that you can give yourself license to be hyperbolic periodically, and no one can tell <laughs> you off uh, because it's written and published now. So, I do believe that. I do believe that, and I think people forget that we're in an incredibly meritocratic era in the history of us. It is unbelievable that you know three billion people have access to the same cutting-edge hardware regardless of whether you're a billionaire or you earn the average salary. It's an incredible story. I mean, people forget that. It's like we we all have the same smartphone and laptop. That's unbelievable. And obviously, you know, I don't mean to belittle the challenge of having the rest of the world catch up, but the fact that the top 30, 40% of the planet are on par is a big deal. And we should celebrate moments of success. Uh, in civilization and try and reinforce them. And I believe that we're on the same trajectory with respect to access to intelligence. In the next decade, we'll see a similar course, which is that everybody is going to get access to the smartest doctor and lawyer and educator and therapist, companion, friend. And you know what we're building at Inflection, um, which is Pi, a chief of staff. Right. It's it's it is going to know everything about you. It's gonna gently give you thoughts on prioritization and feedback and help you plan and organize and teach you and be a place where you can vent when you need to confide in your conciliary and so on. And that that's just gonna be an amazing uplift to productivity and well-being and efficiency and creativity. And we should I don't like the frame of optimism and pessimism. I think. I think it's a bias that people always say to me, so you're a pessimist. It's like, no. And then other people will turn around to me and be like, well, you're just a techno-optimist. I'm like, no, I'm either. Both of those are biases that don't really do justice to a fair evaluation of the facts. I think what I'm predicting is a fair evaluation of the facts. This is an extremely likely outcome, if not in a decade, then certainly in two decades on that time horizon. And that doesn't mean that we can't also take a cold, hard look are the ways in which that might also go wrong right and so that that's the that's wisdom in the modern age is trying to be balanced and even-handed about you know both sides of it
0: yeah very interesting i would love to get into inflection ai and your vision for it you just mentioned uh, uh the notion of a digital chief of staff who helps you prepare for your day it helps you prioritize briefs you on the meetings you're going to be taking um provides even guidance in your personal life should you should you wish uh, talk a bit about where things are. You're only 18 months into this. You've made remarkable progress. Um, I heard you say that inflection will have 22,000 H100s by the end of this year. The mo- You already have, the, I believe, the most anywhere, the largest cluster, I should say, in the world. Uh, and that will be extended uh, considerably by the end of the year. You have uh, enormous uh, amounts of capital, uh, $1.3 billion in funding. Uh, from the likes of Nvidia and Microsoft, um, among others, um, talk a bit about where Pi is now and and what's what's to come. How how far are we from this realization of a full digital chief of staff from your perspective?
1: Yeah, so I mean, t- today Pi is a a kind of friendly, fun, somewhat silly, high EQ conversational companion, right? And I set out to try to design both the safest, but also the kind of kindest um, high EQ AI out there, right? And, you know, the way I think about it is that when applying, you know, these large language models and AI in general, you sort of want to avoid application domains, which require high precision, right? Because the models are fallible and they make mistakes, they produce toxicity and they get things wrong and so on. This is from where I was standing two years ago, Right the logic of just starting with Pi, I mean, um, at high EQ, you know, it was very hard to do high IQ because you had to have a lot of compute and train the biggest models. So that's why we designed this slightly more creative, fun, friendly, because there's like, you know, lots of different ways the conversation can go, all of which could be valid. Right. Um, But I think the next phase is that we're now adding IQ. So Pi is now, as good as GPT 3.5 in terms of factuality. um, And it will shortly exceed GPT 4 in terms of factuality and general knowledge and so on. And so we're going to have this combination of EQ and IQ. And that's kind of what we're working towards at the moment. It will be kind and supportive and friendly. It'll be great and uh, reframing you. It will adapt in session. Is another key thing is adaptation. It needs to switch into jokes, bantery mode, go into a serious political conversation, talk to you about the fact that your cat just died, you know, is it's, it's going to switch really well, which I think is going to feel magical. Um, but then the third phase, which I think is coming, um, is, is very exciting. So, you know, you're right, you mentioned our compute infrastructure. We have about four times more compute than the total amount of compute that was used to train GPT-4. And in the next 12 months or so, we'll train models that are 100 times larger than the frontier, the current frontier. So that's two orders of magnitude more compute applied at a single training run, which is gonna be seismic. And I think what we will get from that is the third element of this trajectory, which is AQ, right? So actions quotient. We have the emotional empathy side, we have the sort of factual intellectual side, And increasingly, we'll be able to have Pi take actions, learn to use APIs, telephone a human and make a request to book a restaurant or buy something or plan something, right? Maybe you'll call other AIs and talk to those AIs to prioritize and plan and book and so on, Um, organize your schedule and your day. So, you know, it's going to be very rudimentary at the beginning, um, you know, late next year, but in the next few years, it's going to get. Exceptional, and I'm very confident that it's going to get over the next five years to human level performance across a very wide range of of A. Q. tasks, um, and it, it, it'll be quite an experience.
0: And you've attracted a remarkable world class team, including the co creators of GPT two, GPT three, Llama, Chinchilla, Gopher, uh, among others. Um, talk a bit, and, and I, I believe it's forty or fifty people currently in the in the organization. Uh, yeah, right? Ever- just forty. Yeah. 40. Yeah, remarkable, uh, given what you've already described you've accomplished uh, with so few people. Um, talk a bit about the team that you are building and continuing to build. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, you're in the fortunate position for very good reason of uh, you know, the, the strong reputation you bring to this from your, your time at DeepMind, you're your being a, a great thought leader in the space, uh, but, but talk a bit about the, the team that you have around you that is you know, propelling you forward in the direction you've described.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, my co-founder Karen Simonian, who's our chief scientist, is is really the most incredible leader. He's he's phenomenal. He's he was a deep in fact, I bought his company at DeepMind in 2014. Um, and he led the deep learning scaling team at DeepMind for seven years and worked on some of the most important um, you know, breakthroughs at, at Deep Mind over the course of that period, including um AlphaGo and Alpha Fold and many other things. So um he he's truly phenomenal and i'm just very lucky to be able to work with an amazing team i think what i'm able to do is create a really um focused environment where exceptional people can do the best work of their career and you know my job is to create the perfect container which is a combination of space and freedom to decide and think but also clarity of vision and clarity of goals um and one of the things that I've become good at over the years, um, you know, through my experience at DeepMind is just being able to hand select um, research and engineering personalities that will, you know, sort of collaborate nicely with one another. Because often, particularly in research, there are super big egos and people have very clear, you know, visions about how something might unfold and and actually... What I've found over the years is actually it's much more intuition-based and speculative than a lot of researchers like to admit. I think we've done a great job, and this is mostly credit to Karen, of creating an incredibly metrics-focused, evaluation-focused culture. Um, So it's just this this super rigorous, fast-moving test environment where every idea gets its day but it dies quickly if the metrics don't support it. And that's really the core engine that we've created internally is this, this constant daily feedback cycle. I mean, we do thousands and thousands of user studies a week with real humans constantly, 24-7. And that that's really the engine be, behind Pi.
0: Very interesting. And it's uh, interesting also that Microsoft is, has invested in you, obviously, very famously. They've, they're a major investor in OpenAI as well. Uh, as I was... Thinking a little bit further about that, it's a little bit like Google Brain and DeepMind. I recognize the two of you are not inside of Microsoft as Google Brain and DeepMind were, but it's kind of a, you know, a, a series of platforms, uh, platform of platforms, I suppose, um, uh, that they are establishing. Can you talk a bit about what was attractive about the, a union with Microsoft, who now has multiple uh, consequential investments in the space?
1: Yeah, I mean Microsoft just has a huge portfolio of different elements. And, you know, they've done such a great job over the years, you know, not just with LinkedIn, but GitHub and many other big assets that they've they've either partnered with or acquired. So it was just attractive to me. i found them very pragmatic in a way that some other companies are very religious about first party experiences. And so they're very straightforward to negotiate with and you know, it's just been a fantastic partnership because they bring so much to the table with their vision. You know, they they bet on chip, Nvidia chips before anyone else. It's very important to remember that the, the, the I think the big bet they really made in OpenAI was the one billion dollar investment in 2019. That showed incredible foresight. You know, Satya and and Kevin Scott, CTO of Microsoft, have just been great partners. They're they're really awesome
0: and for those who are interested in in, in uh, spending time with with pi what's what's the pathway to to onboarding there
1: yeah thank you it's uh it's pi.ai on web and pi the personal ai on ios uh, we'll be out on android very soon um and we've got some great features coming out in the next few weeks we'll have Real-time access to information, so we'll know about the sports scores, and you know, Pi will be fully up to speed on you know the news and what's been happening this weekend. And it's it's a lot of fun having a conversational, you know, relaxed chat with Pi to uh, you know help get stuff done and plan your weekend.
0: Look forward to, uh, to experiencing all of the above. And and as a reminder, uh, just out your new book, "The Coming Wave: Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma." Uh, Mustafa Suleyman, thank you so much for uh, an intriguing conversation representative of this remarkable career that you have, uh, you've forged. Congratulations on your many successes and, um, and, and good luck for the future.
1: That's very kind of you to say thanks, man. I, I've really enjoyed it. Cheers, Peter.